0: Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Genesis chapter 1. Today, we, we pick up again in our series, The Battle for Your Family. And here's the key concept today. Male and female, he created them. That's a portion of the passage that we'll look at in, a, in just a moment. But today, when I'm talking about the battle for your family, we have to talk about some of the issues that are the battlefield today in our culture and so we're, today we're talking about a, an issue that you may never have expected to hear me talk about in church. And you may hear some words that you would never have expected to come out of my lips, but they are issues that must be discussed. because today we discuss an issue that is raging in our culture, a growing gender confusion. I'm talking about males thinking that they should be females. Females thinking that they should be males, and we see this transgenderism displayed all around us. Pay attention to the images that you're seeing in TV and magazine uh, commercials and in many uh, corners of our culture, in advertisement, in print, online. We see a deliberate blurring of the lines between males and females. But the Bible teaches that right at the start, God built maleness and femaleness into his human creation. Why did he do that? Does it matter that he did that? What does this mean for marriage and family? And are these the only two gender categories that are available? We no longer have clear answers to those questions in our culture. Up until recently, In our society, we looked for the answers to these questions in what we thought was a recognition of a prior moral order. In other words, it was assumed that there were two sexes and the reproductive power of male and female sexuality was the underlying design which gives definition to humanity and a reason for marriage. It was assumed that these distinctions are wired into us by a creator. Even if you just called nature that creator, you still looked to the animal kingdom and the pattern of male and femaleness and reproductive relationships, and you observed what you thought was a design. All of this was credited to a something that was prior to our laws and prior to our culture, there was, it was believed, a prior, true, objective order of things. Now, as Christians, we understood that this prior, objective, true order of things comes from God. However, what has been happening in our society is the fact of this prior, true order of things is being rejected. And in its place what has come is the ultimate ethic of choice. The moral bottom line, so to speak, is choice based on an ethic of absolute privacy. And when that is your bottom line, as ultimate, then the individual is free to construct his or own his or her own reality and own truths. And in that environment Family and gender become moldable and malleable concepts. In fact, the very meaning of the word gender has changed. In 1976, Webster's New Collegiate Dictionary, the edition that I have in my office, the first definition of gender is sex. It reads like this, sex, kind, type gender was equivalent to your sex. The current definition in that dictionary is this, quote, the state of male or female in relation to cultural roles. In other words, your gender is no longer your sex. It is the way you choose to live out your sexuality in the culture. So even if I have male sex organs, I may claim my gender is female according to current cultural terminology. And so you ask yourself, how can things be changing so rapidly at such a fundamental level? And what does the Bible have to say about this? Joel Bells writes in World World Magazine and he is correct when he says this, the problem is that we have a wrong view of where we get our views. Where we get our views is all important. So let me establish the foundation. I believe that all proper direction on values and morality issues comes from the foundational teaching of the Bible. And I believe it ought to be accepted by faith. Now, it's important that you realize that all worldviews All systems of thought have some foundational ideas that they accept by faith. In other words, having a Bible-based system of thought is not less logical than any other point of view or worldview. Every system of thought has some basis where you reduce it down to something that they take by faith. If your foundational thought is, there is no God, you are establishing that foundation by faith. You can't prove that foundation. No one can prove that God doesn't exist. If your foundational concept is, well, I just go with the way I feel, whatever feels right in the moment, that's how I live, you are accepting by faith that that is an okay way to run your life. Every system of thought has a a faith-based bottom line. So my bottom line is this. We must seek to understand what the Bible says whenever whatever we are discussing. And my bottom line rests there because I believe that there is a God who has communicated to us through his word. So what does the Bible say about maleness and femaleness? In a moment, we'll get to our passage, but let me establish the principles. The Bible says that men and women are created with distinctiveness, on purpose, by God, and both in His image. Think Think of it this way. When a woman is pregnant and she's expecting a baby, what are the most often questions that she's asked? When and what, right? When will you have your baby? And what are you having? And what's the expected answer to what are you having? It's not, I'm having a human. It is either a boy or a girl. That's the expectation. In fact, what I find so ironic as I look at our cultural landscape is right now, gender reveal parties are all of a sudden hugely popular you you've heard of them they're they're like big deals and at the same time as gender reveal parties are becoming popular we see a full on push to eradicate the differences between the sexes and the roles and norms that come with that it's an ironic thing about our culture but here is what the bible says genesis chapter 1 verse 27 God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Now there we see that humans are created at the pinnacle of God's creation power. And we see that humans are ordered into two sexes. Both sexes are made in the image of God. In other other words, both men and women carry a likeness to God in miniature, if you will. And we see that the differences between maleness and femaleness are hardwired into creation so that we can fulfill at least part of our role while we're here on earth, be fruitful and increase in number. Both males and females carry the image of God. Both are equal in dignity and value. But this equality does not mean interchangeability. Rather, males and females are counterparts to one another. Secondly, the Bible teaches that in making males and females, God includes some gender-specific behavior. Part of that is how we bring children into the world. In other words, the Bible teaches us biology matters. And most obviously, that's seen in reproduction when you consider the difference between males and females. But also it shows up in other areas as well. And now many of our uh, roles, gender expectations and roles are culturally based. I understand that. They don't necessarily spring from a teaching of the scripture. So, but in the culture, there are differences as well. And it doesn't mean necessarily that all boys need to be macho, wanting to play with toy guns and, and car, race cars and get in fights, and all girls will want to be, wear frilly dresses and makeup, but there are some differences that are hardwired in. And that's done by God. Simply put, God wants our families to rear boys to be masculine men and girls to be feminine women. The way God defines it, not necessarily the way the culture defines it. But our culture is drifting away from this basic truth. We as believers in Jesus Christ must note the drift and stay firm on the foundation. And here's the drift. The National Association for Women publishes as one of its goals, quote, to work towards an end to all distinctions based on sex. Now, if they had said workplace distinctions or salary distinctions or some other way, okay, I would all right. But all distinctions, that is not only wrong, it's ultimately impossible. But it is touted as a virtuous cause to be celebrated. Listen carefully to the discourse on this and related topics. And you will hear a society that says those who are confused about their gender are perceived to be heroes in many areas of our society. And this is not lost on our youth who are struggling with teen and preteen angst and issues that come with puberty and identity and the natural pull to rebel against what they see is the adult system that's keeping them in, hemming them, da- hemming them in. And it's happening all around us. The direction of the Family Acceptance Project, which is a pro-LGBT organization at San Francisco State University, writes this. I'm quoting, gender fluidity is the next big wave in terms of adolescent development. Gender has become the defining way that youth organize themselves and rebel against adults. So no wonder we see a rise in gender confusion. Because it's promoted as a heroic virtue, as a means of self-definition, as a means of rebellion. So it is increasing all around us. Whatever you celebrate will increase. And it's being noticed last month in the Los Angeles Times. They ran an article that featured a psychologist who works with families to facilitate the transition of minor children from male appearance to female appearance, female appearance to male appearance. This is the business that this psychologist is in. This is what she does. But she is alarmed by the rate that she's being asked to process these transitions. Here's her quote. The kids are falling under the influence of peers, social media, and medical professionals who fail to ask rigorous emotional health questions. Emotionally troubled kids who think that a reassignment surgery is the answer to their problems. And of course, this transition is false, right? J.K. Rowling, the author of Harry Potter, got into some trouble among her liberal peers for saying that after a surgery that a man has to to change his sex from the appearance of a man to the appearance of a woman, that that person is still not really a woman. And she got into trouble for that. But of course, she's right. Because that man, no matter how much you change the outer appearance, will never give birth, will never menstruate. The gender-specific DNA does not change inside still male. And the attempt to eradicate the distinction is wrong-headed, no matter how many gender-neutral toys we sell in our stores. So how do we raise our children and grandchildren to be men and women as God has ordained? Number one, provide gender role examples in the home, appropriate to the sex of your children. Children need to see that mothers and fathers are not totally interchangeable. Yes, we help each other. Yes, we share in the duties. Yes, we lovingly support one another. Yes, some of the roles that we have as distinct will be derived from our family traditions and from our culture, but that in itself is not bad. And the different roles exemplify the fact that gender is God's idea. There are some things in this family that mommy primarily does. There are some things in this family that daddy primarily does. And while we help each other out, those are obvious and that's the ideal we shoot for in a two-parent home. Secondly, teach gender role education. Teach your children early and often that you are rejoicing in who they are and how God has made made them. Teach your children and your grandchildren that the biological sex that God uh, has given them is what He wants them to be, and He's gifted them that sex out of love. Affirm their gender identity that corresponds with their biology. Number three, give your children and grandchildren focused attention and appropriate affection because children are the most needy people in our society. And they need regular emotional encouragement. They need regular affection. They need touch. They need snuggles. They need hugs. They need to be celebrated. All of this gives them confidence and a sense of acceptance. Parents and grandparents, your acceptance of them helps them accept themselves. But we live in a society in which these sorts of questions are coming up more and more even with the best efforts of parents. So above all, do not make life-altering decisions on the basis of adolescent or pre-adolescent confusion. Remember, your children and grandchildren are children. And work with them to accept themselves. Fourthly, understand the Bible's big picture of why manhood and womanhood and marriage exist. The big picture is stated in Ephesians 5. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now, we noted this earlier in the first edition of this series back before we did the, the, the chosen thing. God made marriage between a man and a woman to be a picture of the eternal relationship that Christ has with the church. And the way that matters on this issue, the issue of transgenderism, is this. When we're defi- uh, defending the Bible's picture of sexuality and gender norms... What we're not doing is simply defending a traditional institutional mode of thinking. We're not defending, well, this is the way we've always done it. But we are defending what God has always meant from eternity past for maleness and femaleness to mean. God designed these differences for a purpose The uniqueness of males and females is part of his handiwork. And in marriage, it illustrates that eternal truth that the church is the bride of Christ. So it's not just about the way we've always done it. It is the way that God asks us to do it. So how should the Christian respond to all this confusion that's out there? Maybe you're not dealing with this in your home, but you're seeing it in society your, uh, your, ch- your grandchildren and children are engaging it in school. How do, we, how do we react to that? There's a few things we have to remember. The Christian needs to remember that we bear a philosophical responsibility. What I mean by that is this. If you name Jesus as your Savior, you have the responsibility to define your philosophy of life based on an accurate interpretation of the Word of God. Why is that true? Because that is how Jesus lived his life. Matthew 4, verse 4, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's the way Jesus lived his life. You have a philosophical responsibility to make the word of God your bottom line, no matter how far the culture drifts. Number two, Christians, we need to remember that we have a societal responsibility. And here's where it gets a little more tricky. We must speak out for the prior objective foundational truths of God. And we must speak out for the fact that they should guide the way we operate our society. And we need to do so in love, for the sake of love. But as you do it, I want you to know you will be misunderstood and sometimes even hated. Because speaking the truth in love sometimes takes us away from the where the society is going. And anything less than total acceptance of the world's agenda today is considered intolerant and even hate speech. But it is both responsible and loving to push back against the idea that says, if your mind does not agree with your body, then the answer is to change the body rather than to treat the mind. It is righteous and loving to push back against that and say, not so fast. Thirdly, Christians have a relational responsibility. God loves the people who are confused about their gender. Jesus died for people who are confused about their gender just like everybody else. And the gender confused are not more broken by sin than anyone else. We are all broken by sin. So those who feel that they're in the wrong body, they don't choose to feel that way. So they need compassion, and they need care. They need love. And feeling that way is not in itself sin. It is psychological distress, and psychological distress is not sin. But it may lead us down the wrong road. All people need repentance and forgiveness and restorative grace. We also need the lights, okay, (laughs) there we go. Maleness and femaleness are a gift from our Creator. Marriage and family are not the creation of the state, they're not the creation of society or the church. It is a gift from our designer to illustrate the eternal covenant that those who follow Him have with Him. Husbands and wives, males and male and female, we have a responsibility to follow the design. But the promise is this. When you say yes to the design of the master, we will find the kind of joy and peace that is totally lacking in the world. When you live his way, you gain his peace. And that's what I pray for all of us. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, we ask that you help us in these complex issues that our families are facing today and that our society is facing today. We ask that you give us wisdom, that you give us insight, and that you give us the ability truly to speak the truth in love and demonstrate that it is love in which we speak. Help us do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.